Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. You have to have well-directed action. And that includes spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. Like we, for most people today, they just need to slow down. And if you don't slow down, you will not be able to recognize what's going on around you. And you will always be, you'll be like Peter, you will have already done the wrong thing before you had time to think about it, even mm-hmm. though someone told you you were going to do it ahead of yeah. time. Well, it's what Jesus was teaching him by telling him ahead of time, you're going to deny me three times. Because Jesus was always teaching them and listening to them say, oh, no, I won't do it. And then they did it. And now then they get to think about who they are. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Today's conversation is one I'm especially excited to share with you because it truly was one of the highlights of my life. I got to sit down with one of my heroes, and he was gracious enough to let me turn on the microphone. I'm referring to none other than Dr. Dallas Willard, who for several decades taught philosophy at the University of Southern California and was also the author of several books, including The Spirit of the Disciplines, Hearing God, and The Divine Conspiracy. In his book, Soul Keeping, John Ortberg wrote that Dallas was incapable of hurry. Indeed, Dallas Willard was not in a rush for anything or anyone. I'll never forget the moment after this interview when we parted ways. First, Dallas reached out and shook my hand. I took his hand and shook it back. But at that moment when it's socially appropriate to let go of the other person's hand, Dallas just held on to my hand. It was then that I noticed that this great mind and great soul of a man was gazing right into my eyes as he continued to hold my hand for what felt like a very long time. It was utterly unnerving, but in a good kind of way. After reflecting on that moment for several years, I believe that what unnerved me was the sheer presence of a man who for all his life had sought to be like Jesus. This conversation was originally recorded in Los Angeles in 2008, before Dallas's passing in May of 2013 at the age of 77. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Dallas Willard on Restoring the Soul. As I think about the, the breadth of your, your Christian books, it seems like it's all focused on uh, describing to people the, the context, the need for, and the methodology for spiritual transformation. And I'm curious, in your own life and in your own vocation, what's been the impetus and the passion behind that theme through all those books? Well, 
very simply, it's what is called the Great Commission, which as a child struck me and for some reason has settled in my mind and my body and has been the test and guide of, I guess, most everything that I've tried to do as a minister, as a writer, and um, the realization as a young Baptist minister that it wasn't being done. The, which, great, the great Commission. Right, sort of. I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't being done. I wasn't doing it. Okay. And uh, then the growing realization of what that meant and why that was that way and the attempt to do something about it, I think has, it's all be, always been in the back of my mind that that's what we ought to do. Mm -hmm. And um, the last phrase is what I call the great omission from the Great Commission, namely teach them to do everything that I've said. Hmm. Was that the impetus behind your book, The Great Omission? Well, you know, that book is a sort of an after, it's sort of like the phosphorus on the, the porpoise's tail. <laughs> it's, um, someone thought that I ought to pull together a lot of articles and speeches and things that I'd given. And that seemed to be the center of much of that without planning it or anything. It's, okay. But one of the bylines on the, on the back of that book is what the church forgot to teach you. Uh -huh. And so the, it, it seems as if, um, from your perspective, and I would agree with you that we fulfilled the first part of the Great Commission, uh, and maybe the second part, beginning processes of discipleship, but, but not really teaching people to walk in that mm -hmm. way. Well, I, uh, in, when I published a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, I think in the 80s sometime, I made the statement in there that I do not know of a single church or parachurch group that had a concrete plan for teaching the people under their influence to do the things that Jesus said. And I, I, that, that still stands. Today I, that's been your experience? Well, I challenge people to think about it and so far I haven't had anyone who comes forward and says, yes, here's our plan, here's how we do it, and here's the outcome. So we have a, a system that is not built around that. And then why and what to do about it is mainly that's the what question. I find myself talking about. It ties in very closely with what I do. Um, as a philosopher because actually that pr general problem, if you wish, call it character formation, is one of the most ancient and enduring problems of philosophy up to the present century where philosophy has been professionalized and God only knows possibly what it's about, but up until well into the 20th century we still thought that's Philosophers should have some insight into what is good and what is right and how to get there. Mm -hmm. When you speak of uh, professionalized philosophy, are you speaking of the clinical philosophers where people 
I've heard of can uh, can go to a philosopher in the same way that they'd go to a psychotherapist. Well, actually, that's very recent. That has developed in just the last few years. Okay. Partly out of a sense on the part of some philosophers that philosophy has no justification for its existence at all, as it is now done. <laughs> and but see, classically, that's a reversion to the classical understanding of the philosopher, and. Uh, gets uh, some interesting discussion going. Since we're speaking about your career as a philosopher, what's it, what's it like to be uh, an unapologetic and outspoken Christian at a secular university such as USC? Well, I think the short answer to that is if you do your job and do it well, there's no problem. And uh, because people don't, I mean, all sorts of crazy things are believed in universities. <laughs> Apparently you're doing your job by all accounts very well. Well, that's, really, that is the, and, and uh, that's the way I've approached it. I never intended to become a philosopher. I intended to be a pastor or evangelist or something of that sort. What led you to pursue the doctorate in philosophy? I felt that I was unendurably ignorant about God and the soul, and by the time I realized that, I realized also that philosophers spend more time on those topics than anyone. Fascinating. Even theologians. Hmm. And so I decided to do some graduate work in philosophy. Went to the University of Wisconsin. I didn't intend to take a degree. I intended to return to the ministry in some form. But one thing led to another, and I was very much involved in ministry while I was there. And. They asked me to stay on and teach there after I finished. Um, it's just, a, I, you know, it's just the Lord led me, that's all. Yeah. And I had no, I didn't have enough sense to know what was happening. You also but at spent one some... point, he's, I was deliberating about this the year after I had finished my doctorate and was teaching there. The Lord said to me, well, if you stay in the church, the universities will be closed to you. If you go into the university the churches will be open to you. Interesting. And again, I, I didn't particularly like that idea. But hmm. Share with me about this idea you wrote about in The Divine Conspiracy, and you've, you've even touched on at this conference, about our weakened understanding of the gospel and what the, what the biblical idea of the gospel is. The gospel from beginning to end of the Bible is that God is in charge and that we can trust him and uh, this becomes much clearer of course as Jesus comes and makes clear what God is like and what the kingdom of God is like and that everyone is welcome and so on but that's the basic that's the gospel that was preached beforehand which Jesus said Abraham saw my day and was glad uh, so there is one gospel, but uh, of course it has to be made available and made available in a way of understanding. Now what has happened is that in recent decades, not all that long because really uh, time for many, many decades after the Protestant Reformation, people had a pretty good understanding of faith. But then it came to mean, especially after the modernist liberal 
fundamentalist controversy. It came to mean simply believing the right things. And that came to mean giving assent or professing them. And that's and the reduced didn't. gospel. That's the reduced gospel. And mm -hmm. it, the thing is, you can do that without trusting Christ and without entering the kingdom of God. Mm. So believing the right things becomes, in fact, a kind of work of righteousness that you do. Hmm. And for some reason, God likes that, and he lets you into heaven when you die. What a paradox that believing the right things is almost the ultimate work. Yes. Yeah. But that it, it enters, and then many of the things you hear discussed in the group are issues of self-righteousness in relation to that system of believing the right things. Huh. And, um, of course, the older churches, um, they put it in terms of receiving the sacraments. And, but they, that still left the individual free to more or less lead their life on their own. As yeah. they, they just take care of it that way. You've alluded to some of these reduced gospels that are certainly an aspect of the gospel, of a, a social gospel or a gospel that's focused on getting into heaven. Right. Um, but, but this broader idea is you're referring to as the kingdom of God and life with God. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, this is what we call, uh, without thinking sometimes, a personal relationship to God or to Christ. Now, a personal relationship is one where there is ongoing fellowship, influence, help, benefit, and so on, communication. And that is what Jesus calls eternal life when he says eternal life in John 17:3, is knowledge of you, the only true God, and of Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, of course, many people take that, well, that means getting all your doctrines right. So you believe the right things about God and about Christ, and then you have eternal life, and eternal life is what you get after you die. But as I mentioned, the knowledge biblically always refers to interactive relationship. And that is what is actually being talked about in that passage on eternal life. It is interactive relationship. And then, of course, you see the whole point of God's work is presence, and you see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the with God life, as I call it, uh, is a life uh, that is uh, captured in the, uh, in the phrase Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, uh, that's what, that's the real substance of our relationship to God. Not hiding and so on, because if you're hiding, um, from others or from God, well, then that's not good for interactive relationship. Right, right. <laughs> the whole idea of interactive relationship um, takes it takes it about the here and now, life now, Absolutely. walking with God now, that's and right. that impacting my life, as opposed to just in the sweets by and by. Yes, and you know what we've had is a gospel that basically says, if you accept the fact that Jesus died in your place, then you can get on with your life and you'll go to heaven when you die. And then whatever needs to be fixed will be fixed. This just occurred to me, but um, it strikes me that, that most Christians underestimate what's available in a life with God. Well, that is one of the most heartbreaking things about this whole situation. They basically decide to stay, go on their own, work, work out things the best they can. It's like... Uh, 
uh, the pastor who goes to visit the man in the hospital and afterwards talks to his wife and says, well, let's pray. And she says, oh, is it that bad? Mm. You know, like prayer is something that you only do in these extreme moments and not something you do because it's a good thing to do all the time. Yes. You know? And this is obviously a thematic of your book, Spirit of the Disciplines, but that, that transformation that occurs and what is available in a life with God happens over a long journey or frequently a long journey and not overnight. Well, that's right. It always takes time. Now, here's, the, here's, here's an issue, though, because if you're well taught, it doesn't take as long. The situation now is people are not taught this. And so uh, odd person here and there will pick up something like Brother Lawrence's practice in the presence of God or something, and that will strike them, and then they will try to think about doing that. But our problem today is that we don't have good instruction in the spiritual life. We just don't. Uh, and we don't think about salvation as a life. Uh, so that's where the teaching comes in. See, in times past now, and not just in the early church, but for example, uh, this Franciscan movement in its early days, the Quakers, in their early days, the Wesleyans, and so on. You always have to say their early days because that's the way it works. Um, you know, it didn't take those people long. It was because uh, a small group of people had started something that had tremendous power because God was with them, tangibly, manifestly with them. And then that would draw others in. And in that context, you can teach people much better. See, now, if you teach spiritual formation now, you are teaching against an incredibly powerful default system of Christianity that says it has nothing to do with that. Mm. It's interesting, uh, Dallas, that even as you're speaking about teaching people, and I'm, I'm a, a part-time uh, seminary professor, mm -hmm. and I encounter this all the time, as, even as you speak of teaching, right away my mind goes to the cognitive aspect of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But there again, you're defining knowledge as interactive relationship. And so you're talking about instructing and teaching people and modeling interactive relationship mm -hmm. with God and not just filling their heads with uh, an idea, a book, right. e even scripture, which is a good thing. Can, can you talk about what that modeling and teaching of interactive relationship might look like? Well, what you do is you teach them, and you teach what it means, and you teach them practicalities around it, and then you set them to do it. Like, for example, I mean, a simple illustration is bless those who curse you. Jesus said to do that. How do you do it? Well, you're going to need to teach people what they are because they have no idea what it is, to tell you the truth. Uh, they don't identify the circumstances in life in which it would be relevant. Uh, so what you do is you teach them, what you tell them things like, now you bless someone when you explicitly invoke the presence of God for their good. Hmm. Right? So, okay. Uh, now, when do you do that? Now, then you have to help them identify circumstances because actually in most of our homes you have people cursing one another. In most of our Christian homes, hmm. uh, you certainly, if you drive a car, you have plenty of opportunities to practice, <laughs> <laughs> and so on. So actually, you do. You have to teach people now. Okay, this is something we're going to do. What kind of circumstance would it be? 
where you're going to do this. And then you have to teach them how to identify when this is happening so you won't just whoosh cursing back at them. Right, right. And, and you have to give them some training in how to observe circumstances, see what is coming, uh, and then you have to let them grow to the point where they actually have blessing in them. Because blessing isn't like a faucet you can turn on here and there. It's something about a person. And then you send them out and you say, now this week we're going to identify cases where we have people cursing one another. Hmm. So now you come back next week and we'll talk about them. Were you possibly inclined to curse someone? <laughs> what I like about what you're saying is instead of just saying go love people, you're bringing it down to the very, very concrete that's, level. That's right. And we can teach people to do this. Yeah. And you won't, it won't take you three or four weeks with a, with a group of people that have decided that they're going to do what Jesus said to the point that they come to realize how much better it is to bless people who curse you than to curse them hmm. or to withdraw and become cold and isolated. Hmm. And then they're really into it and they know how good it is. Hmm. And that's, of course, the turning point for all of the commands of Jesus is where you realize everything he said, you're so much better off if you do it. <laughs> His life, his ways. That's right. And, and then, of course, you have to help. Of course, grace, you can't do this on your own, but grace will be there. You need the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's waiting on us. We're not waiting on him. So the, the, my phrase for that is that you have to have well-directed action. And that includes spiritual disciplines. Mm -hmm. Like we, for most people today, they just need to slow down. And if you don't slow down, you will not be able to recognize what's going on around you. And you will always be, you'll be like Peter, you will have already done the wrong thing before you had time to think about it, even mm -hmm. though someone told you you were going to do it ahead of time. Yeah. And that's, you why Jesus, well, that's what Jesus was teaching him by telling him ahead of time, you're going to deny me three times. Because Jesus was always teaching them and listening to them say, oh, no, I won't do it. And then they did it. And now then they get to think about who they are. <laughs> wow, I never thought of that that, that way. Um, it, it's almost as if today uh, you referred, I think it was you earlier that used the word distraction. Yeah. Um, that, that the spirit of the age is really that of distraction, distraction. and drivenness and busyness. Mm -hmm. How do we begin to stem the tide, to turn the tide of that distraction and busyness in our lives? Um, well, Given everything else, that's very difficult because we don't have much in the way of a point of reference because if you go to church, you're just probably going to get more distractions. And there'll be more things to do and more this, that, and the other. And, uh, so I think that we start out by setting an example. And that would mean, among other things, that when we're with people, we're not distracted. We listen to them. We don't rush down the line. We give time. We have to set a pattern. And then I think that we can teach about it and uh, get some groups, probably not Sunday morning, but have some meetings where, for example, you may have a period of silence. And you can talk, talk to people about how to experience these things. 
And uh, solitude and silence are really basic with reference to this issue that you're talking about. Because it really, it really does break your distraction. Uh, if you can, uh, Pascal has this interesting little statement where he says, all the troubles of the world, of course it's an exaggeration, uh, all the troubles of the world come from the fact that people cannot go in a room and sit down and be quiet. And, and he's talking, actually, he's talking about how distraction is fundamental to human existence as we know it. And, of course, that's true. But why, why do we want to be distracted? It's because we don't find our character and our fate to be pleasing. We don't find our lives to be good. So we need to be distracted. And his discussion of distra distra distraction in life, in the Pensees, or Thoughts, uh, one of his main books, is just invaluable. Of course, he was a, a profound Christian man with a profound <laughs> Christian sister. <laughs> and uh, so he, he experienced what he was talking about. Basically, we just have to lead people by our example and teaching into a different form of life, a different way of living. Get the Bluetooth out of their ear and the uh, uh, telephone off their belt and go sit down somewhere and be quiet and look up to God. And it, it sounds like that's obviously uh, a set of choices you've made in your own life. Yes. Uh, well, over a period of time I did. I backed my way into it. I, I didn't have any teaching on my own. I, I came to know the power of silence and solitude because as a minister I wanted to be able to make converts. And I believe that by reading that making converts depended upon a lot of praying. And then I found that you could pray. Uh, I found a little room in a Sunday school building that had these little chairs that are six feet, six inches tall, you know. <laughs> and no one was in there for the whole week. And so I found I could go in there and spend... And then I began to figure out that a lot of the effect was coming because of solitude and silence. Was that uncomfortable for you at first? No, it, it wasn't because I didn't know what it was doing. Okay. See, that, I'm, the Lord was merciful to me in so many ways because at that point, if someone had said, well, you need to practice solitude and silence, I'd have said, well, that sounds like a, like a bunch of monkery to me. I don't, <laughs> I'm a Baptist, and I ain't going to do that. <laughs> You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. Mm -hmm.